Section 121 of Complete Original Short Stories of Guy de Maupassant. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. Recording by Tatiana Chichilla, Columbus, Ohio. Section 121. Sundays of a Bourgeois, Part 2. The celebration is approaching and preliminary quivers are already running through the streets, just as the ripples disturb the water preparatory to a storm. The shops, draped with flags, display a variety of gay-colored bunting materials, and the dry-goods people deceive one about the three colors as grocers do about the weight of candles. Little by little, hearts warm up to the matter. People speak about it in the street before dinner. Ideas are exchanged. What a celebration it will be, my friend! What a celebration! Have you heard the news? All the rulers are coming incognito, as bourgeois, in order to see it. I hear that the Emperor of Russia has arrived, and he expects to go about everywhere with the Prince of Wales. It certainly will be a fine celebration. It is going to be a celebration, what Monsieur Patissot, Parisian bourgeois, calls a celebration, one of these nameless tumults which, for fifteen hours, roll from one end of the city to the other, every ugly specimen togged out in its finest, a mob of perspiring bodies, where side by side are tossed about the stout gossip bedecked in red, white, and blue ribbons, grown fat behind her counter and panting from lack of breath, the rickety clerk with his wife and brat in tow, the laborer carrying his youngster astride his neck, the bewildered provincial with his foolish, dazed expression, the groom, barely shaved and still spreading the perfume of the stable, and the foreigners dressed like monkeys, English women like giraffes, the water carrier cleaned up for the occasion, and the innumerable phalanx of little bourgeois, inoffensive little people, amused at everything. All this crowding and pressing, the sweat and dust and the turmoil, all these eddies of human flesh, trampling of corns beneath the feet of your neighbors, the city all topsy-turvy, these vile odors, these frantic efforts toward nothing, the breath of millions of people, all redolent of garlic, gives to Monsieur Patissot all the joy which it is possible for his heart to hold. After reading the proclamation of the mayor on the walls of his district, he had made his preparations. This bit of prose said, I wish to call your attention particularly to the part of individuals in this celebration. Decorate your homes, illuminate your windows. Get together, open up a subscription in order to give to your houses and to your street, a more brilliant and more artistic appearance than the neighboring houses and streets. Then Monsieur Patissot tried to imagine how he could give to his home an artistic appearance. One serious obstacle stood in the way. His only window looked out on a courtyard, a narrow, dark shaft where only the rats could have seen his three Japanese lanterns. He needed a public opening. He found it. On the first floor of his house lived a rich man, a nobleman and a royalist, whose coachman, also a reactionary, occupied a garret room on the sixth floor facing the street. Monsieur Patissot supposed that by paying, every conscience can be bought, he could obtain the use of the room for the day. He proposed five francs to this citizen of the whip for the use of his room from noon till midnight. The offer was immediately accepted. Then he began to busy himself with the decorations. Three flags, four lanterns. Was that enough to give to this box an artistic appearance, to express all the noble feelings of his soul? No, assuredly not. But, notwithstanding diligent search and nightly meditation, Monsieur Patissot could think of nothing else. He consulted his neighbors, who were surprised at the question. He questioned his colleagues. Everyone had bought lanterns and flags, some adding, for the occasion, red, white, and blue bunting. Then he began to rack his brains for some original idea. He frequented the cafes, questioning the patrons. They lacked imagination. Then one morning he went out on top of an omnibus. A respectable-looking gentleman was smoking a cigar beside him. A little farther away, a laborer was smoking his pipe upside down. Near the driver, two rough fellows were joking, and clerks of every description were going to business for three cents. Before the stores, stacks of flags were resplendent under the rising sun. Patissot turned to his neighbor. 
"'It is going to be a fine celebration,' he said. The gentleman looked at him sideways and answered in a haughty manner. "'That makes no difference to me.' "'You are not going to take part in it?' asked the surprised clerk. The other shook his head disdainfully and declared, "'They make me tired with their celebrations. Whose celebration is it? The government's? I do not recognize the government, monsieur.' But Patissot, as government employee, took on his superior manner and answered in a stern voice, "'Monsieur, the Republic is the government.' His neighbor was not in the least disturbed, and, pushing his hands down in his pockets, he exclaimed, "'Well, and what then? It makes no difference to me.' whether it's for the republic or something else i don't care what i want monsieur is to know my government i saw charles the tenth and adhered to him monsieur i saw louis philippe and adhered to him monsieur i saw napoleon and adhered to him but i have never seen the republic patissot still serious answered the republic monsieur is represented by its president the other grumbled well then show him to me patissot shrugged his shoulders everyone can see him he's not shut up in a closet Suddenly the fat man grew angry. "'Excuse me, monsieur, he cannot be seen. I have personally tried more than a hundred times, monsieur. I have posted myself near the Elysee. He did not come out. A passer-by informed me that he was playing billiards in the café opposite. I went to the café opposite. He was not there. I had been promised that he would go to Milan for the convention. I went to Milan. I did not see him. At last I became weary. I did not even see monsieur Gambetta, and I do not know a single deputy.' He was growing excited. A government, monsieur, is made to be seen. That's what it's there for, and nothing else. One must be able to know that on such and such a day, at such an hour, the government will pass through such and such a street. Then one goes there and is satisfied. Patissot, now calm, was enjoying his arguments. It is true, he said, that it is agreeable to know the people by whom one is governed. The gentleman continued more gently. Do you know how I could manage the celebration? Well, monsieur, I would have a procession of gilded cars, like the chariots used at the crownings of kings. In them, I would parade all the members of the government, from the president to the deputies, throughout Paris all day long. In that manner, at least, everyone would know by sight the personnel of the state. But one of the tufts near the coachman turned around, exclaiming, And the fattened ox? Where would you put him? A laugh ran round the two benches. Patissot understood the objection and murmured, It might not perhaps be very dignified. The gentleman thought the matter over and admitted it. Then, he said, I would place them in view someplace so that everyone could see them without going out of his way. On the triumphal arch at the Place de l'Etoile, for instance, I would have the whole population pass before them. That would be very imposing. Once more the tough turned round and said, You'd have to take telescopes to see their faces. The gentleman did not answer. He continued, it's just like the presentation of the flags. There ought to be some pretext. A mimic war ought to be organized, and the banners would be awarded to the troops as a reward. I had an idea about which I wrote to the minister, but he has not deigned to answer me. As the taking of the Bastille has been chosen for the date of the national celebration, a reproduction of this event might be made. There would be a pasteboard Bastille, fixed up by a scene painter, and concealing within its walls the whole column of July. Then, monsieur, the troop would attack. That would be a magnificent spectacle as well as a lesson to see the army itself overthrow the ramparts of tyranny then this bastille would be set fire to and from the midst of the flames would appear the column with the genius of liberty symbol of a new order and the freedom of the people this time everyone was listening to him and finding the idea excellent an old gentleman exclaimed that is a great idea monsieur which does you honor it is to be regretted that the government did not accept it a young man declared that actors ought to recite the iams of barbier through the streets in order to teach the people art and liberty simultaneously 
These propositions excited general enthusiasm. Each one wished to have his word. All were wrought up. From a passing hand organ, a few strains of the Marseillaise were heard. The laborers started the song, and everybody joined in, roaring the chorus. The exalted nature of the song and its wild rhythm filed the driver, who lashed his horses to a gallop. Monsieur Patisseau was bawling at the top of his lungs, and the passengers inside, frightened, were wondering what hurricane had struck them. At last they stopped, and Monsieur Patisseau, judging his neighbor to be a man of initiative, consulted him about the preparations which he expected to make. Lanterns and flags are all right, said Patisseau, but I prefer something better. The other thought for a long time, but found nothing. Then, in despair, the clerk bought three flags and four lanterns. Many poets think that nature is incomplete without women, and hence, doubtless, come all the flowery comparisons which, in their songs, make our natural companion, in turn, a rose, a violet, a tulip, or something of that order. The need of tenderness which seizes us at dusk, when the evening mist begins to roll in from the hills, and when all the perfumes of the earth intoxicate us, is but imperfectly satisfied by lyric invocations. Monsieur Patisseau, like all others, was seized with a wild desire for tenderness, for sweet kisses exchanged along a path where sunshine steals in at times, for the pressure of a pair of small hands, for a supple waist bending under his embrace. He began to look at love as an unbounded pleasure, and, in his hours of reverie, he thanked the great unknown for having put so much charm into the caresses of human beings. But he needed a companion, and he did not know where to find one. On the advice of a friend, he went to the Folie Berger. There he saw a complete assortment. He was greatly perplexed to choose between them, for the desires of his heart were chiefly composed of poetic impulses, and poetry did not seem to be the strong point of these young ladies with penciled eyebrows, who smiled at him in such a disturbing manner, showing the enamel of their false teeth. At last his choice fell on a young beginner who seemed poor and timid, and whose sad look seemed to announce a nature easily influenced by poetry. He made an appointment with her for the following day, at nine o'clock, at the Saint-Lazaire station. She did not come, but she was kind enough to send a friend in her stead. She was a tall, red-haired girl, patriotically dressed in three colors, and covered by an immense tunnel hat, of which her head occupied the center. Monsieur Patisseau, a little disappointed, nevertheless accepted the substitute. They left for Maison Lafitte, where regattas and a grand Venetian festival had been announced. As soon as they were in the car, which was already occupied by two gentlemen who wore the red ribbon, and three ladies who must at least have been duchesses, they were so dignified. The big red-haired girl, who answered to the name of Octavie, announced to Patisseau in a screeching voice that she was a fine girl, fond of a good time, and loving the country, because there she could pick flowers and eat fried fish. She laughed with a shrillness which almost shattered the windows, familiarly calling her companion, my big darling. Shame overwhelmed Patisseau, who, as a government employee, had to observe a certain amount of decorum. But Octavie stopped talking, glancing at her neighbors, seized with the overpowering desire which haunts all women of a certain class to make the acquaintance of respectable women. After about five minutes, she thought she had found an opening, and, drawing from her pocket a guilbois, she politely offered it to one of the amazed ladies, who declined, shaking her head. Then the big red-haired girl began saying things with a double meaning, speaking of women who are stuck up without being any better than the others. Sometimes she would let out a vulgar word which acted like a bomb exploding amid the icy dignity of the passengers. At last they arrived. Patisseau immediately wished to gain the shady nooks of the park, hoping that the melancholy of the forest would quiet the ruffled temper of his companion, but an entirely different effect resulted. As soon as she was amid the leaves and grass, she began to sing at the top of her lungs snatches from operas which had stuck in her frivolous mind, warbling and trilling, passing from Robert le Diable to the Mouette, 
lingering especially on a sentimental love song whose last verses she sang in a voice as piercing as a gimlet then suddenly she grew hungry patiso who was still awaiting the hoped-for tenderness tried in vain to retain her then she grew angry exclaiming i'm not here for a dull time am i he had to take her to the petite half restaurant which was near the place where the regatta was to be held she ordered an endless luncheon a succession of dishes substantial enough to feed a regiment then unable to wait she called for relishes a box of sardines was brought she started in on it as though she intended to swallow the box herself but when she had eaten two or three of the little oily fish she declared that she was no longer hungry and that she wished to see the preparations for the race patisot in despair and in his turn seized with hunger absolutely refused to move she started off alone promising to return in time for the dessert he began to eat in lonely silence not knowing how to lead this rebellious nature to the realization of his dreams as she did not return he set out in search of her she had found some friends a troop of boatmen in scanty garb sunburned to the tips of their ears and gesticulating who were loudly arranging the details of the race in front of the house of formes the builder two respectable-looking gentlemen probably the judges were listening attentively as soon as she saw patisot octavie who was leaning on the tanned arm of a strapping fellow who probably had more muscle than brains whispered a few words in his ears he answered that's an agreement she returned to the clerk full of joy her eyes sparkling almost caressing let's go for a row said she pleased to see her so charming he gave in to this new whim and procured a boat but she obstinately refused to go to the races notwithstanding patisot's wishes i had rather be alone with you darling his heart thrilled at last he took off his coat and began to row madly an old dilapidated mill whose worm-eaten wheels hung over the water stood with its two arches across a little arm of the river slowly they passed beneath it and when they were on the other side they noticed before them a delightful little stretch of river shaded by great trees which formed an arch over their heads the little stream flowed along winding first to the right and then to the left continually revealing new scenes broad fields on one side and on the other side a mill covered with cottages they passed before a bathing establishment almost entirely hidden by the foliage a charming country spot where gentlemen in clean gloves and beribboned ladies displayed all the ridiculous awkwardness of elegant people in the country she cried joyously later on we'll take a dip there further on in a kind of bay she wished to stop coaxing come here honey right next to me she put her arm around his neck and leaning her head on his shoulder she murmured how nice it is how delightful it is on the water patisot was reveling in happiness he was thinking of those foolish boatmen who without ever feeling the penetrating charm of the river banks and the delicate grace of the reeds row along out of breath perspiring and tired out from the tavern where they take luncheon to the tavern where they take dinner he was so comfortable that he fell asleep when he awoke he was alone he called but no one answered anxious he climbed up on the side of the river fearing that some accident might have happened then in the distance coming in his direction he saw a long slender gig which four oarsmen as black as negroes were driving through the water like an arrow it came nearer skimming over the water a woman was holding the tiller heavens it looked it was she in order to regulate the rhythm of the stroke she was singing in her shrill voice a boating song which she interrupted for a minute as she got in front of patisot then throwing him a kiss she cried you big goose on the occasion of the national celebration monsieur antoine Perdrie, chief of monsieur patisot's department was made a knight of the legion of honor he had been in service for thirty years under preceding governments and for ten years under the present one his employees although grumbling a little at being thus rewarded in the person of their chief thought it wise nevertheless to offer him a cross studded with paste diamonds 
The new knight, in turn, not wishing to be outdone, invited them all to dinner for the following Sunday, at his place at Asnières. The house, decorated with Moorish ornaments, looked like a café concert, but its location gave it value as the railroad cut through the whole garden, passing within a hundred and fifty feet of the porch. On the regulation plot of grass stood a basin of Roman cement, containing goldfish and a stream of water the size of that which comes from a syringe, which occasionally made microscopic rainbows, at which the guests marveled. The feeling of this irrigator was the constant preoccupation of Monsieur Perdry, who would sometimes get up at five o'clock in the morning in order to fill the tank. Then in his shirt sleeves, his big stomach almost bursting from his trousers, he would pump wildly, so that on returning from the office he could have the satisfaction of letting the fountain play, and of imagining that it was cooling off the garden. On the night of the official dinner, all the guests, one after the other, went into ecstasies over the surroundings, and each time they heard a train in the distance, Monsieur Perdry would announce to them its destination, Saint-Germain, Le Havre, Cherbourg, or Dieppe, and they would playfully wave to the passengers leaning from the windows. The whole office force was there. First came Monsieur Capitaine, the assistant chief, Monsieur Patissot, chief clerk, then Messieurs de Saint-Bertère and Vallon, elegant young employees who only came to the office when they had to. Lastly, Monsieur Raid, known throughout the ministry for the absurd doctrines which he upheld, and the copying clerk, Monsieur Bovan. Monsieur Raid passed for a character. Some called him a dreamer or an idealist, others a revolutionary. Everyone agreed that he was very clumsy. Old, thin, and small, with bright eyes and long white hair, he had all his life professed a profound contempt for administrative work. A book rummager and a great reader, with the nature continually in revolt against everything, a seeker of truth and a despiser of popular prejudices, he had a clear and paradoxical manner of expressing his opinions, which closed the mouths of self-satisfied fools and of those that were discontented without knowing why. People said, that old fool of a raid, or that hare-brained raid, and the slowness of his promotion seemed to indicate the reason, according to commonplace minds. His freedom of speech often made his colleagues tremble. They asked themselves with terror how he had been able to keep his place as long as he had. As soon as they had seated themselves, Monsieur Perdry thanked his collaborators in a neat little speech, promising them his protection, the more valuable as his power grew, and he ended with a stirring peroration in which he thanked and glorified a government so liberal and just that it knows how to seek out the worthy from among the humble. Monsieur Capitaine, the assistant chief, answered in the name of the office, congratulated, greeted, exalted, sang the praises of all. Frantic applause greeted those two bits of eloquence. After that, they settled down seriously to the business of eating. Everything went well up to the dessert. Lack of conversation went unnoticed. But after the coffee, a discussion arose, and Monsieur Raid let himself loose and soon began to overstep the bounds of discretion. They naturally discussed love, and a breath of chivalry intoxicated this room full of bureaucrats. They praised and exalted the superior beauty of women, the delicacy of her soul, her aptitude for exquisite things, the correctness of her judgment, and the refinement of her sentiments. Monsieur Raid began to protest, energetically refusing to credit the so-called fair sex with all the qualities they ascribed to it. Then, amid the general indignation, he quoted some authors. Schopenhauer, gentlemen. Schopenhauer, the great philosopher, revered by all Germany, says, Man's intelligence must have been terribly deadened by love, in order to call this sex with the small waist, narrow shoulders, large hips, and crooked legs the fair sex. All its beauty lies in the instinct of love. Instead of calling it the fair, it would have been better to call it the unesthetic sex. Women have neither the appreciation nor the knowledge of music, any more than they have of poetry or of the plastic arts. With them, it is merely an ape-like imitation, pure pretense, affectation cultivated from their desire to please.
the man who said that is an idiot exclaimed monsieur de sombreterre monsieur raid smilingly continued and how about rousseau gentlemen here is his opinion women as a rule love no art are skilled in none and have no talent monsieur de sombreterre disdainfully shrugged his shoulders then rousseau is as much of a fool as the other that's all monsieur raid still smiling went on and this is what lord byron said who nevertheless loved women they should be well fed and well dressed but not allowed to mingle with society they should also be taught religion but they should ignore poetry and politics only being allowed to read religious works or cookbooks monsieur raid continued you see gentlemen all of them studied painting and music but not a single one of them has ever painted a remarkable picture or composed a great opera why gentlemen because they are the sexes secure the secondary sex in every sense of the word made to be kept apart in the background monsieur patisseau was growing angry and exclaimed and how about madame sand monsieur she is the one exception monsieur the one exception i will quote to you another passage from another great philosopher this one an englishman herbert spencer here is what he says each sex is capable under the influence of abnormal stimulation of manifesting faculties ordinarily reserved for the other one thus for instance in extreme cases a special excitement may cause the breasts of men to give milk children deprived of their mothers have often thus been saved in time of famine nevertheless we do not place this faculty of giving milk among the male attributes it is the same with female intelligence which in certain cases will give superior products but which is not to be considered an estimate of the feminine nature as a social factor all monsieur patisseau's chivalric instincts were wounded and he declared you are not a frenchman monsieur french gallantry is a form of patriotism monsieur raid retorted i have very little patriotism monsieur as little as i can get along with a coolness settled over the company but he continued quietly do you admit with me that war is a barbarous thing that this custom of killing off people constitutes a condition of savagery that it is odious when life is the only real good to see governments whose duty is to protect the lives of their subjects persistently looking for means of destruction am i not right well if war is a terrible thing what about patriotism which is the idea at the base of it when a murderer kills he has a fixed idea it is to steal when a good man sticks his bayonet through another man father of a family or perhaps a great artist what idea is he following out everybody was shocked when one has such thoughts one should not express them in public monsieur patisseau continued there are however monsieur principles which all good people recognize monsieur raid asked which ones then very solemnly monsieur patisseau pronounced morality monsieur monsieur raid was beaming he exclaimed just let me give you one example gentlemen one little example what is your opinion of the gentlemen with the silk caps who thrive along the boulevards on the delightful traffic which you know and who make a living out of it a look of disgust ran around the table well gentlemen only a century ago when an elegant gentleman very ticklish about his honor had for friend a beautiful and rich lady it was considered perfectly proper to live at her expense and even to squander her whole fortune this game was considered delightful this only goes to show that the principles of morality are by no means settled and that monsieur perdry visibly embarrassed stopped him monsieur raid you are sapping the very foundations of society one must always have principles thus in politics here is monsieur de sombreterre who is a legitimist monsieur vallon an orleanist monsieur pateau and myself republicans we all have very different principles and yet we agree very well because we have them but monsieur raid exclaimed 
I also have principles, gentlemen, very distinct ones. Monsieur Patisseau raised his head and coldly asked, It would please me greatly to know them, monsieur. Monsieur Ray did not need to be coaxed. Here they are, monsieur. First principle, government by one person is a monstrosity. Second principle, restricted suffrage is an injustice. Third principle, universal suffrage is idiotic. To deliver up millions of men, superior minds, scientists, even geniuses, to the caprice and will of a being who, in an instant of gaiety, madness, intoxication, or love, would not hesitate to sacrifice everything for his exalted fancy, would spend the wealth of the country amassed by others with difficulty, would have thousands of men slaughtered on the battlefields, all this appears to me, a simple logician, a monstrous aberration. But, admitting that a country must govern itself, to exclude, on some always debatable pretext, a part of the citizens from the administration of affairs, is such an injustice that it seems to me unworthy of a further discussion. There remains universal suffrage. I suppose that you will agree with me that geniuses are a rarity. Let us be liberal and say that there are at present five in France. Now let us add perhaps two hundred men with a decided talent, one thousand others possessing various talents, and ten thousand superior intellects. This is a staff of 11,205 minds. After that, you have the army of mediocrities, followed by the multitude of fools. As the mediocrities and the fools always form the immense majority, it is impossible for them to elect an intelligent government. In order to be fair, I admit that logically, universal suffrage seems to me the only admissible principle, but it is impracticable. Here are the reasons why. To make all the living forces of the country cooperate in the government, to represent all the interests, to take into account all the rights is an ideal dream, but hardly practicable, because the only force which can be measured is that very one which should be neglected, the stupid strength of numbers. According to your method, unintelligent numbers equal genius, knowledge, learning, wealth, and industry. When you are able to give to a member of the Institute 10,000 votes to a ragman's one, 100 votes for a great landowner as against his farmer's 10, then you will have approached the equilibrium of forces and obtained a national representation which will really represent the strength of the nation. But I challenge you to do it. Here are my conclusions. Formerly, when a man was a failure at every other profession, he turned photographer. Now he has himself elected a deputy. A government thus composed will always be sadly lacking, incapable of evil as well as of good. On the other hand, a despot, if he be stupid, can do a lot of harm. And if he be intelligent, a thing which is very scarce, he may do good. I cannot decide between these two forms of government. I declare myself to be an anarchist, that is to say, a partisan of that power which is the most unassuming, the least felt, the most liberal, in the broadest sense of the word, and revolutionary at the same time. By that, I mean the everlasting enemy of this same power, which can in no way be anything but defective. That's all. Cries of indignation rose about the table, and all, whether legitimist, orleanist, or republican, through force of circumstances, grew red with anger. Monsieur Patisseau especially was choking with rage, and turning toward Monsieur Red, he cried, Then, Monsieur, you believe in nothing? The other answered quietly, You're absolutely correct, Monsieur. The anger felt by all the guests prevented Monsieur Raid from continuing, and Monsieur Perdry, as chief, closed the discussion. Enough, gentlemen, we all have our own opinion, and we have no intention of changing it. All agreed with the wise words, but Monsieur Raid, never satisfied, wished to have the last word. I have, however, one moral, said he. It is simple and always applicable. One sentence embraces the whole thought. Here it is. Never do unto another that which you would not have him do unto you. I defy you to pick any flaw in it, while I will undertake to demolish your most sacred principles with three arguments. 
This time there was no answer, but as they were going home at night, by couples, each one was saying to his companion, Really, Monsieur Raid goes much too far. His mind must surely be unbalanced. He ought to be appointed assistant chief at the Sheraton Asylum. End of section 121. Recording by Tatiana Chichilla, Columbus, Ohio.